0: Before we jump into this week's episode, I would like to take a minute to allow you to prepare emotionally for the content we will cover today, or to decide to take a break and not listen. While I'm eager for you to hear about these topics, your well being is of the greatest importance to me. Hey, it's Sarah, and this is Kids These Days, a podcast brought to you by grant funding from the Kansas Department for Children and Families. Hello there, and welcome to part four of the four-part series on trauma, toxic stress, ACEs, resilience, and trauma-informed care principles and practices, which is what we'll be talking about today. So let's start out with what is trauma-informed care? Because I know I've been saying that phrase a lot in the last three episodes. So let's talk about what it is. It's it's a system where all parties involved recognize and respond to the impact of traumatic stress on children, caregivers, service providers. And it shifts the focus from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And it it asks, Trauma-Informed Care asks that we act in collaboration to maximize physical and psychological safety and facilitate the recovery of the child and family and humans. So the majority of the information regarding today's episode is taken from the checklist of early childhood practices that support social-emotional development and trauma-informed care. And that resource was developed by the Pyramid Model Consortium. And of course, there will be a link to it in the show notes, um, it is an excellent resource that I use in the training that we do for trauma-informed care practices. Um, it's, it's, it's very much a checklist that you could print off and just kind of look around your program. It's a great self-reflection. So within this checklist, within this resource, uh, the Pyramid Model Consortium defines pr- the principles of trauma-informed care as nurturing and responsive relationships creating a safe learning environment using positive directions and expectations, calm predictable transitions, help regulate children's emotions and express their feelings appropriately, and intensive interventions that consider the child's experiences. And hopefully before, as we dive into this, some of these things that we've talked about, a safe learning environment, predictable transitions, regulating emotions, re- relationships, these are things we've talked about in so many of our past episodes so i hope that as you listen to these trauma informed care practices and principles that you also start to reflect on the things you're already doing in your classroom home program that you know to be appropriate develop, developmentally appropriate practices and see how important they are because how they tie to trauma And how we can help that child and family recover and grow. So let's take a dive into that. So first we have nurturing and responsive relationships. And these are relationships that foster attachment, trust, collaboration, and empowerment. So I'm curious, what do these words mean to you? What would it look like in your program or classroom or home if you had relationships that build attachment, trust, collaboration, and empowerment. Some ways that we can do this is to respond to children's comments and ideas by asking questions and making comments. Focus on noticing a child's emotional expression. We just talked about that some in that resilient in the resilience episode we just did. right? Eighty percent of what we do, what we communicate, is done through our body language. We'll focus on that for children. Name it. Narrate it. Be attuned to each child's overload point. Be emotionally and physically available for them. Speak to children in a warm, positive, calm, and supportive manner. Actively listen to children. Show interest. Kids know when you are not listening with your whole face. And be patient. It takes children a little bit longer to process information than it does adults. Sometimes they not sometimes, all the times. I truly think they really want to answer your question. They just have to process it and find the words. You know, spend some time with individual children or small groups of children. Follow their lead and play. Engage in their child-directed play with them. Let them be the leaders. And then recognize their efforts and offer positive descriptive acknowledgement. You put so many colors on your paper. Tell me about that. So hopefully, if you just listened to the resilience episode last week, or maybe you're catching up right now. What we just talked about was a lot of the things that we talked about in building resilience. So let's talk about creating a safe learning environment that uses positive directions and expectations. So first and foremost, we always want to avoid discipline through fear and physical punishment. Because in addition to that being developmentally inappropriate, disciplining through fear and or physical punishment may make an abused child stress or feeling of panic even worse. We want to encourage children to engage in developing expectations with examples for the class. And of course that's age based on age appropriateness. Infants aren't going to come up with the expectations of the classrooms. Some toddlers might as they get a little bit older, a little more verbal, and then we want to post with visual representation of those expectations and examples, right? Kids are visual learners. I mean, they're multi-sensory learners, but they're most definitely visual learners. Because again, 80% of what we communicate is done through that nonverbal stuff. So pictures are so helpful for them. Um, and then we want to reference those posted representations of the examples and expectations. Don't just take the pictures and make them look cute and put them on your wall. Use them, right? So some ways to do that might be classroom expectation boards. Um, These provide children a consistent visual reminder of what is expected when they engage in certain areas or with certain materials throughout the program. Because when everyone understands the expectations of the classroom or the program or the home, and those expectations are taught and reinforced consistently in a way that's developmentally appropriate by all teachers in the room, the children get it and they start to follow those expectations. And then they start to educate others, peers, on those expectations. And you might notice that I'm talking about expectation boards versus calling them like rules boards. And this is a change I've made in my practice over the last couple of years, and I wanna explain why real quick. So when something is an expectation, I focus on the relationship that teaches it, right? I expect that you will use your walking feet, but I also understand that you may not be able to meet that expectation today and will benefit from a gentle reminders, both verbally and visual representations. As opposed to when I hear rule, That to me, that's a focus on black and white compliance. The rule is using walking feet, so that's what you must do. And if you don't use walking feet, you need to go back and try again, right? Rules don't allow for individuals not understanding them. And yes, as adults, we have rules, right? Our brains are fully developed. Two and three-year-olds, their brains are not fully developed. So we have to operate from that relational point of an expectation, And within that safe learning environment, we also want to make sure that we are organizing our space in a way that clearly communicates whether a center is closed or open or how many children can be in that center. And we want to make materials accessible to children so that they can freely access the materials as they need or want during that free play time. And when we can do this is with material and storage labels, which we've talked about in... um, the free play episodes of this podcast, right? Because labeling materials and storage areas with pictures and words, even though they can't read, develops a sense of responsibility and accomplishment within that environment, right? I know that the blocks go in this place because I see a picture of the same thing that I'm holding in my hand. I know how to do it and I can do it by myself. And remember, they can't read, but labeling materials and and things in the classroom with words and pictures begins to create that print awareness in a concrete and meaningful way that letters make sounds, make words that have meaning. And again, it, it provides that guide that they can reference as they continue to scaffold their current understanding of how things work. And also labeling, labeling classroom items in areas with languages that are spoken in your classroom of those families at home has that sense of acceptance and inclusion for all children so we also want to make sure that we have a space available for individual children to be by themselves when they need a break right because I don't know about you but (laughs) if I'm even at home with just you know my husband and the dog sometimes I need to be in my craft room by myself that's kind of my safe space Uh, definitely there's a space in there for Adam to be and Gus to be, of course you can't see it, but you know, Gus is hanging out with me in the podcasting closet right now, but sometimes I just need to be there so that I can just be and children need that same thing, right? So this calm, cozy, safe area, again, we've talked about in other episodes, we want it to be comfortable, inviting, big enough for one child and easily supervised by an adult in the room. This area is not to be used as a punishment or for time out or as a way to keep a child contained. This is something that you can suggest to the child. It looks like you're angry right now. Your fists are clenched up, your face is scrunched up, you're screaming. Would you like to go to the calm area to calm your body? It's not you look angry you need to go calm down in the calm down area that's not helpful we want to talk to the kids about it being a space where they can use it to calm down read books etc Um, you know it can just be a special pillow with a basket of some calming toys in the quiet area so the third principle of trauma-informed care is a calm predictable transitions remember Children are multi-sensory learners, so if we're going to prepare them for something, we got to do it in a couple of different ways. So we can remind them of the upcoming transition, right, by saying five more minutes, singing the same song, using a timer, using visual prompts of the schedule and routines to show children how to engage in that transition. Um, giving individual reminders to children who maybe need a little more help with transitions. And with transitions that are calm and predictable we want to focus on the behavior we want to see right we're going to tiptoe super super quiet all the way down the hall to the gross motor room can you show me your tiptoe feet as opposed to we're not going to run on the way to the gross motor room (laughs) offer him choices right would you like to tiptoe to the gross motor room Or would you like to hop like bunnies? And we want to repeat, you know, the schedule, the expectations, repeat those over and over and over again. Just because you've told them three times, guess what? Children need an average of 2,000 times in context before they get it. So if you've told them three times, you have like 1,997 to go today. Because once a child feels comfortable with the school day, the flexibility and change can be more easily introduced, right? Once they know what's expected of them, they know how to operate within it. And let me share two examples of things you can do to assist in your calm, predictable transitions. And the first one is that visual schedule, which I was kind of alluding to above here. Visual schedules provide children a more concrete guide of how their day might go or of specific steps in a routine, right? Because kids' brains are not able to process the abstract concepts like time and detail and multi-step sequences until you're like seven or eight. So when you tell a kid, yeah, we're gonna do that in like 15 minutes. is that like five hours? Is that two seconds? What does that mean, right? So you can have a visual schedule that's used for the classroom as a whole or for an individual child. You wanna make sure that it's displayed all the way across we're all the way up and down because kids don't understand right to left top to bottom like we do when we read yet and you want to display the whole day not just parts and pieces of it the whole day because that kid that comes in and 10 minutes into the day says when is my mom coming you can take them to the visual schedule that displays your whole day and walk them through it to say then mom will be here and then timers timers can provide children a more concrete guide regarding specific spans of time within their day. It helps prepare prepare them for upcoming transitions and to model turn taking, right? And this is not me saying, you four will play in this area for 15 minutes, then we're gonna rotate. Not that kind of use of timers, but the she would like a turn with it when you're done. How much longer before you will be done? Would you like one more minute or two more minutes? And like I mentioned before, We have covered things like visual schedules and timers in several different episodes, so if you're interested in learning more about that, check out the free play episode and the schedules, routines, and transitions episodes. So the fourth principle of trauma-informed care is to help children regulate their emotions and express their feelings appropriately. Respond to children's feelings and expressions by commenting on their facial expressions and body language, as we may have mentioned before and in previous episodes. (laughs) show children a range of range of emotions, right? Adults should ensure that their affect reflects the emotions that they're experiencing. Joy, curiosity, concern, pleasure, etc. Show them your emotions. Now that doesn't mean like when you're really, really angry that you scream and yell, not necessarily that, but just showing your emotions on your face and naming them by teaching children a range of vocabulary words. You know, we do a lot of mad, sad, happy, tired. (laughs) What about frustrated or proud or silly? There's so many of them. You know, encourage children to express their emotions, not just through words, but through music, art, play. You know, to recognize those sensory cues in their body. And most importantly, teach them strategies for how to regulate emotions. You know... Uh, mindful breaths, noticing sights and sounds. There's so many different things out there. So part of that labeling emotions and expression of them is to have emotions boards in your classroom. You know, providing children with concrete visual representations of what an emotion looks like helps them begin to connect what they're feeling with what they're seeing. And it's always great to have a mirror next to your emotions boards. Because remember, children are visual learners, right? It's most effective to see real pictures of the children in your program. So I very much always encourage, take pictures of children in your classroom displaying different emotions. Because, you know, if I can be like, you know, if I'm that little person and I say, oh, that's a picture of Sarah and she's sad. I know Sarah. Okay, I can start to connect sad with the person that I know. And, you know, when children begin to understand what emotions are and mean, they're better able to identify what they're feeling and then begin to express that in a safe and developmentally appropriate manner. And a big part of that regulating emotions is teaching children strategies to do that, you know, and that's a big part of your safe, calm, cozy area is having some materials in there that help children manage emotions, right? Young children, just like humans, use their senses to learn about the world around them. And, you know, research shows that when we connect children's sensory experiences with brain activity, that there's a development of perceptual and behavioral competencies. So we want to put things in the calming area materials, you know, that promote that sensory exploration, like sensory bottles or texture boards. Um... Thera putty, squeezy balls, loofahs. I love loofahs. You can get three for a dollar at the Dollar Tree. And they're a great thing. If I'm angry and I want to throw something, you throw that loofah, you ain't hurting anybody. But I'm still getting that input of throwing. Um, you can do some smells. You can do soft things. I will tell you, if you guys haven't learned yet, I'm very much a sensory seeker. I love soft things that I can just touch and that's so regulating to me. So, you know, thinking about the things that you know get your children engaged and help calm them, think about having those things in your safe place and throughout the classroom program home in a safe, predictable manner. You know, also thinking about during art time, or sensory time, that you're playing with sand, playing with Play-Doh, playing with water. Those are all sensory activities that can be very calming and engaging. And then finally, when we talk about trauma-informed care principles, is that intensive interventions that consider the child's experiences. And I want to be very clear here. 85 to 95% of children will never need intensive interventions. And I know sometimes when you maybe have a classroom or a group of kids in your home that it feels like everybody needs intensive intervention. I think that I have found, I don't think, I have found in my experience with providers is that that when those things happen, that that's a time for us to reflect on our environment and on our materials and our activities and our interactions, because truly, 85 to 95% of children will never need intensive interventions. What most children need are all the things we've been talking about above. You know, that calm, predictable transitions, visual schedules, um, acknowledgement of emotions and materials to help me manage those emotions, knowing the expectations of the classrooms, of the classroom program home. When I know those things and I know how to operate within those things, I'm less likely to have behaviors because my needs are getting met. So when we talk about intensive interventions that consider the child's experiences, we definitely wanna be working with the child's family to identify any potential triggers. Um, We wanna work with the family to develop a plan that includes replacement skills, uh, preventing the challenging behavior and providing new adult responses. And some of those replacement skills might be, you know, restating the expectation over and over again in a calm, positive tone, modeling the use of specific words or phrases, read books, tell stories, constantly and positively reinforcing the use of those visual prompts and supports in the room, which again, if those things are happening consistently with all teachers in the classroom program home more than likely you won't get to the place where a child or two children or what have you need intensive interventions that are planned out because you're already meeting those needs. So we have come to the end of this trauma series. Um, I want to thank everyone who's been listening and provided me some feedback. It's, Uh, like I said last week in the resilience episode at the end, it's, it had been a bit of a daunting task to try to get all this information into bite-sized pieces. You know, I'm not always bite-sized. I try very hard, (laughs) but I guess I just want to say thank you again for the feedback that people have provided. I would love to hear more from all of you, you know, your questions, the things that you're doing in your program, how you're utilizing the resources. You know, as we walk into the holidays, this can be a time of of trauma and stress, both good and bad. But now is the time, as our schedules start to get a little crazy with, you know, kids being gone, teachers being gone, people getting sick, etc. Now is the time to remember, you know, those resilient strategies and these trauma-informed care practices and those things that you're already doing that you know are developmentally appropriate to keep moving on, to keep being that one stable, committed adult for those children in your program, but to also be taking care of you. You can't pour from an empty cup. We don't want the crusty, white, gross stuff at the bottom of the cup to be what your mental health is. So that's it. That's all. And we will see you next week. Bye. Kids These Days is a co-production of the Casito Kids Infant-Toddler Specialist Network and the Casito Workforce Development Programs. These programs are supported through a grant from the Kansas Department for Children and Families Child Care and Early Education Services. However, information or opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the position or policy of the agency, and no official endorsement should be inferred. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or want to share your practice related to this or a previous episode, please email us at kidsthesedayspod at gmail and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Kids These Days pod, and on Twitter at ktdpod. Don't forget to hit subscribe, rate, and review. That's how others learn about us. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by Sarah Holmes. Music track Hackbeat by Kevin MacLeod.